0: All right, welcome back to our study on the book of Galatians, this beautiful letter from Paul to the Christians in the, the region of Galatia. We talked last week about uh, some of the context and the history of this letter, uh, but it's, it's very similar to a lot of Paul's letters he's writing to deal with conflict. In the first century, when Christianity first emerged, it was primarily a Jewish religion. Ethnically, most Christians were Jews for quite a while, uh, at least through, through the first century and into the second. But uh, a lot of the world viewed that as just a denomination or a sect of Judaism. And in fact, some Jews even viewed it that way. They were still Jews in practice, though they just accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so as Gentiles began to be ministered to, and we, and we start with, with Peter uh, after his vision on the housetop going to Cornelius, We see it accepted amongst Christians, and particularly Jewish Christians, that the Gentiles get into. But there's always this little undercurrent, this undertone of conflict. The Jews still kind of feel like we were here first, and the Gentiles kind of feel like, yeah, but you kind of killed Jesus. So there's this kind of jockeying going on. Now, Paul writes a lot to address these issues, these conflicts with Judaism and Christianity, and even the writer of Hebrews addresses this directly Sometimes it's a matter of ignorance. It's a matter of tradition. It's a matter of breaking free from something that's been Completely ingrained in you and Paul is encouraging you, don't slip back into that old law. It's obsolete. It's done away with its fulfilled Live in your liberty in Christ. It's a new thing, but sometimes he addresses these things directly because conflict is being sown dissension and division is being sown by certain self-interested people, false teachers who are teaching a different gospel, not just different ways of looking at things, different doctrines or practices, a different gospel. What does that mean? It means teaching a different means of salvation. Instead of Jesus, it's Jesus and something. That was what these people were teaching, and in this case, they're teaching Jesus and following the old law, particularly the issue of circumcision. Now, obviously... This hasn't been an issue for us today in, in, in the Christian world, mostly because the majority of Christians throughout the world are Gentile. Uh, so we, And because the cultural concept, at least for Western Christians in America, um, the, the cultural aspect of circumcision doesn't exist. It's a personal medical choice we make with our children, and it's not, uh, it's not always an ethnic thing anymore. Uh, at least not in terms of religion. So this is a little different for us. But we can take the concept here that Paul is going to lay out for how we deal with conflict, and we can apply it to a lot of things. And that's what we want to do with it. We don't want to try and read into it our current situation. We want to understand the template that he's drawing and apply that when we face similar circumstances. All right, so let's dig into chapter 2. So Paul's been talking about his story. His story of salvation and what he did after that. So he, he's doing ministry, he's doing mission work. And then uh, chapter 2, and he says that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, why did he go to Jerusalem? Well, beginning in verse 2 and on, he tells the story I went there because I felt compelled to go and minister to the Gentiles, and I wanted to make sure I was right. He says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately to those who seemed influential the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. All right, so he's telling a story, but he's telling a story to make a point because he felt compelled to minister to the Gentiles. So he goes to the Christians in Jerusalem who are Jewish, and he himself is Jewish. Barnabas is also Jewish. Titus, we're going to find out, is a Gentile, but we'll get to that. And he says, look, guys, I've had this idea that it's my job to go and preach to the Gentiles. And this is what I want to tell him. And these people who are influential in the church there say, yeah, we think that's a good idea. And in all of that, as he lays the gospel out to them and as they respond, at no point does Titus, he says in verse 3, who was with him, no point did they require him to be circumcised. So really the height of influence in the church would be the, Christians, the, the Christian elders in Jerusalem. They were right there with Titus, and they never once said anything about him being circumcised. Okay, so he's adding some authority to this idea, though he was Greek. Verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He's saying there were people there who were sneaking about, trying to see what we were up to, and trying to denounce us for this. We didn't give in to them. You don't apologize to the mob for something you didn't do. And he doesn't have anything to apologize for. He's not going to back down. They have freedom in Christ. They have a liberty in Christ. And they're going to live in it with joy. And that means that Titus doesn't have to be circumcised. And they're not going to give in to these people who are speaking out against them. Verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, and Paul says here in parentheses that it doesn't make a difference to me that they were influential, God isn't partial, but we have to admit practically some people have greater influence and people listen to certain people. Um, but to those people who were considered important, those I say who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw I have been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and again, parentheses here, Paul says the, the God that inspired Peter to do this and worked through his ministry is the same God that works through my ministry. So he's saying these people saw that I was sincere, that God was working through me just as he would worked through Peter, and just as Peter was free to minister to the Jews, I am free and authorized to minister to the Gentiles. Um, so he, he says the same, the same uh, uh, one who worked through Peter for his ministry worked through him. Verse 9, And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Jews and Gentiles, right? And so he said, we went up, we told them we wanted to minister to the Gentiles. They never mentioned circumcision. They never asked our own Gentile in our cohort to be circumcised. Nope, they accepted us in the freedom of Christ they shook hands and said, "Go and do that. We'll handle the Jews. You take care of the Gentiles." Um, if we operated this way in, in Christianity today, there'd be a lot less division. Because when someone says, "Well, I want to do some evangelistic work," or "I feel a need to be a participant in this ministry," uh, what do we do? We go, "Oh, well, we can't do that because this this group's involved, and they might think we're we're condoning this group or." We know you shouldn't do it that way you should do it this way you shouldn't preach it like that you shouldn't worship like that what do we do we tear down we, we say no we're not going to be a part of that ministry because you have a different name than us or you worship in a different way than we do or you think why do we do that here Jewish Christians and uh, you know and, and all of them involved except for Titus were Jews here but they they say we want to go and minister to this group in this way and the other group says, well, we're going to go minister to this group in this way. We're on the same team. And they shake hands. And they have fellowship. And they wish each other well. And the only thing they asked of them is, they're in verse 10, they said, hey, remember the poor. That's an important part of Christianity is taking care of poor people and helpless people. And so he says, we, we went there. They never bound anything on us. They said, go, follow the Spirit, follow God, minister to those who are in need. And that's it. We do a lot, we add a lot to the recipe when we try to engage in ministry. So what happened after that? Well, Peter and Paul, they get into a little bit of a disagreement. Some things happen because Peter is influenced and Paul uh, needs to set him straight. So we're going to get some background on this story. All this background serves to help Paul instruct Galatia on how to handle this conflict, all right? Verse 11, and and in the translation I'm using, is referred to as Cephas, but it's Peter. Uh, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he, Paul seems like the kind of guy that maybe not was always the funnest person to be around. He was pretty bold. He was pretty direct, okay? And, and sometimes that doesn't serve him very well, but everyone has their strengths and weaknesses, and God uses them to the, to the best uh, that we have to offer. And Paul was not afraid to get in your face and say, hey, i got a problem with you. Um, So he opposes Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 12, for before certain men came to James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. By the way, if anyone ever appeared on a ballot uh, in the United States under the circumcision party, I'm not really sure what might happen to them. Um, that would be an interesting move. So, let's set the scene here. Peter is dining with Gentiles. Who you you are who you eat with in Jewish culture. So, if and, and Gentiles were generally seen as unclean and unfit and second class citizens. So, if you're a Jew and you're dining with a Gentile, yikes! Um, that's a faux pas. We might say um, use some fancy fancy French lingo there. Um, so he. He's eating with the Gentiles. And he's fine with it. But then some people come in and he doesn't want to get catch flack from them so he kind of, oh, you know, pretends that he wasn't doing what he was doing which was fellowshipping with the Gentiles. So he backs off. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now you see Barnabas, he was strong. He was there with Paul. He, he was in the room when they were discussing the ministry to the Gentiles, this is the power of influence. And this is why we have to really guard ourselves against these kinds of false teachings and hypocrisies that influence us because we will influence others. And so Peter kind of... And and look, we, we know some things about Peter's temperament, don't we? We know some things about his personality. Now, he's a, he's a different guy in Acts than he was in the Gospels, Right. He's got the spirit moving through him. He's a great evangelist and a great minister and a great leader of the early church. However, personality and temperament exist, okay? Who we are and how we act exists, and that sometimes influences us one way or the other. Peter tended to be a little bit weak when it comes to taking a stand. Look at the denial of Christ, right? Look at uh, well, I, I, would, I, I hesitate to criticize walking on water because that's not something I could do either. But, you know, we, we see that. We see sometimes Peter lacks a little, bit of, a little bit of courage. And so he sees these people walk into the room. He doesn't want to catch flack from them, and he starts to back away. And guess what? Everyone else starts to back away too, withdrawing fellowship. So-and-so did it. We need to do it. We're going to stay united. We're going to be on the same team. And they back away. Verse 14, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now see, this is great. Paul loves unity. He teaches unity. He has unity with these people when they agree that they're going to preach the gospel to these different groups of people. But the minute you step out of line with the gospel, the minute you, and what is it that, that steps out of line? Is it worship style? Is it opinions about hell? Is it opinions about Instrumental music or something? No. The, he st- they stepped out of line with the truth of the gospel. How? They withdrew unity. They withdrew fellowship. Now, there are things that are probably worth withdrawing fellowship over. But they are not every little disagreement. And in this case, Paul says they withdrew fellowship for, for no reason other than the false teachings of others, and that made them contrary to the truth of the gospel. And that is when Paul says it's time to call someone out. We call people out. in The history of the church uh, is very, is rife with this. We call people out for every little thing. We, we've made it an Olympic sport calling people out on doctrinal disagreements. And Paul says there is a time to call out. And when is it? It's when you start dividing people. He says that very clearly, actually, in other places. When you start dividing people... That's when you need to be called out. That's the only group that he, Paul ever instructs people to separate from. He doesn't tell them to separate from people that worship different or separate from people that hold different doctrinal interpretations or anything like that. He says you need to separate from the people that cause division. That's who you need to disfellowship. And here he goes. He's going to confront this because you've stepped out of line with the truth of the gospel. And then he says, in front of everybody, by the way, he calls Peter out in public. He says... If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You are not even a good Jew. So why are you trying to make the Gentiles more Jewish? Well, that's harsh words. Peter, you don't live because you acknowledge you've been freed from the bondage of the law. You don't live like a good Jew anymore you live just like a gentile but you want to bind this one thing on the gentiles and and now peter never said that but his action showed that he feared the mob and he and that is that's consent fearing the mob is saying i i agree with them or at least i don't feel strongly enough about my position to oppose them so so now paul is going to launch off from he, he he recounts his little bar barbing there with the uh, Uh, with with Peter, and now goes into a discussion about what that means, what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be a Gentile, and what it means to be a sinner, what it means to be saved. We're talking about faith here, okay? And this is going to be now a theme throughout the, the book. Verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one is justified. He says, you know, there's some things we all agree on. We are Jews by birth, ethnically. We are Jews. And we're not like those Gentile sinners, right? Because that's what a Gentile was to Jew. They're the unclean. They're just, by nature, they are sinful. That's how Jews looked at at Gentiles. He said, you know, we we talk that way, but verse 16, he says, but we we know that the law doesn't save us. We know that because we've experienced it, we've lived it, and we see better than anybody that the law does not save you. The works do not save you because no one is capable, and that's how he ends that verse, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, no one is capable. No one on this earth is capable of keeping every rule perfectly. So we as Jews had a front row seat to the shortcomings of the law and its inability to save, and yet we still look at Gentiles and go, look at those sinners. Which is funny because because of the law, it's not those outside the law that are really the evident sinners. The sin of the Jews is actually highlighted by the law. See, if there's there's a group of people that has no law, it's really hard to call them lawbreakers because they're not living by a law. Now, we might say they do moral or ethical things that we disagree with, but it's really hard to say that they're living in illegality because they don't have a law to break. It's just like if they didn't post a speed limit, people just drove the speed they wanted to, we might look at somebody and go, boy, they're driving too fast. And maybe they are, but they're not breaking any laws. So for the Jew and the Gentile, the Jews look at the Gentiles and go, they're a bunch of sinners. And yet the only group in those two that's actually violating any kind of law are the Jews. And so Paul's pointing out, you pronounce judgment and point fingers at them and treat them this way. But your own sin is the only one being highlighted as, as the breaking of law. And you should know, because you've lived it, that you can't keep that law perfectly and you can't be saved by that. Verse 17 now, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now this is some complicated language here. Uh, Paul, he's discussing how Gentiles are known among Jews as sinners. Um, But when Jewish Christians associate with them, they themselves are open to the charge from the traditionalist Jew that they are sinners. So he says if we're being justified in Christ and we're to have unity and someone says, ah, but you associate with sinners, then that that's no thats no knock against Christ, okay? He, he doesn't lose that debate. The problem then is with the people making the accusation. For if I rebuild, verse 18, what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been—now, big verse coming up here in 20, and I want to give it its due. I just want to—this is some difficult language. Paul reasons very well. He's very intellectual. But we can understand it if we, if we give it a good reading. So he's saying, you know, we've already accepted we're not justified by the law. We're justified by Christ. And yet we treat Gentiles poorly. Why? They didn't violate any law. They lived outside of God. Right? But we lived in God, and yet we violated the law. So we too are sinners. And if we associate with them and people levy the charge against us that we're associating with sinners or that we ourselves are unclean because of that association, um, well, that's not legitimate. Because, yes, having to rebuild something that you tore down is a tacit admission that you tore something down. Having to be justified by Christ because you couldn't keep the law is a tacit admission that you couldn't keep the law. And that's okay because through the law, Paul says, I died to the law. I died to it. I was put to death to it so that I could be freed from it. I put aside that old me that was beholden to that law, that imperfect, fallible law. And I gave myself to God. Verse 20, here's his explanation. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. The way I escaped that law, he says, is I was crucified along with Christ. I died with him on the cross. This is a biblical um, a biblical tool here, linguistically, called metonymy. We see a lot, and we're going to see it more in this, in this letter, that we are partakers with Christ in his death, um, that doesn't literally mean that we die. Um, it means that we receive the benefits of his death, okay? Um, it's a part standing for a whole. So when, when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, that mean, he hung on the cross with him. It means a part, of, a part of me, something about my soul, was present in what Jesus was doing, in that what he was bringing to the world, I was able to partake in. And so now... And again, this is the conflict, and we're going to get into this in chapter 3, this perceived conflict we have between salvation by works and salvation by faith. And he's talking about being justified by faith. Now, what does it mean to be justified? Well, the old saying is it means just as if I'd never sinned. It does mean to be declared righteous. It means to be declared righteous on the basis of the faith in Jesus Christ. We didn't actually do anything. We didn't actually cleanse ourselves in any way other than accepting Jesus. Um, It is strictly by faith that we receive justification from sins. And Paul says, I was crucified with Christ, and now it's not me you're seeing, it's Jesus in me. And I live differently because of it. I want you to keep that concept in mind because there's this straw man argument that's made that if you believe that you have to do anything at all to please God, you are teaching salvation by works. I've been accused of teaching salvation by works. I think if you watch enough of my lessons on here and and in worship services, I'm about the furthest you can get from salvation by works. Now, I do teach baptism because I believe the Bible teaches that the way, and certainly in Galatians, the way we enter into that covenant relationship is through baptism. To suggest that I am saying that baptism itself is a work of righteousness by which we earn heaven that's incorrect. That's not what I've ever taught. But baptism is, I believe Scripture teaches, the way that we enter into a covenant relationship with God, and it's still faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. Now, can you be saved without without baptism? I don't believe the Bible teaches that, um, that, that there's another way, but I believe God is big enough that there may be people saved who weren't. I'm okay with that. If I get to heaven and there's people there that weren't baptized and they're going to be saved, I'm good with it. God can do what he wants. But while I'm here, I'm going to teach what I believe the Bible teaches, and that is that we enter into that covenant relationship through baptism. And if if that's not where you're at one way or the other, that's fine too. But that's what I teach. And I've been accused of teaching salvation by works because of that. That's a straw man argument. And so what happens on both sides of this is if you believe that you you have to do anything at all in order to be pleasing to God, you're said that you teach salvation by works. And then there's the other side where if you teach strictly salvation by faith, oh, well, you mean you don't have to obey anything? You don't have to live righteously, yada, yada. No. See, that's taking an argument and breaking it off into its extremes, all right? And what Paul says here makes it very clear, and I think Paul in Romans is very clear, even James people say is the polar opposite of Paul when it comes to this because he says salvation or faith without works is dead, right? No, they both say the same thing. They are in unison on this. But it's how we define the terms. It's how we define what it means to have works and to have faith. And in this case, Paul says, look, I was crucified with Christ. It's I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. And what happened because of that? See, Paul says he was justified by faith and yet The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. How I live, how I behave, the choices I make, the actions I take. Paul says, I was justified by faith, but it transformed my life and I obey as a result. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see a lot of names of people who did righteous things. But the writer there says they were declared righteous because of their faith. Even though they did things in an expression of that faith. So yes, we are saved by faith and faith alone. But do we live differently because of that faith? I would think so. If we don't live differently but claim to have faith, do we really have faith? That's the question James asks. And Paul is dealing with that here. I've been crucified with Christ. I've participated in the benefits of the death of Jesus Christ. I've been saved by faith, justified by faith, but I don't live like I used to. I don't live like I used to. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. A summation of what I've just said. He says, I'm, I'm not, but I, by living differently, I'm not doing away with the grace of God. Me trying to do good things doesn't mean that I don't believe grace exists. He said, but if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I strive to find salvation in my works, then I'm making Jesus' death meaningless. I had this conversation with someone recently where we talked about this idea of faith and works. And my response is this because I hear preachers say this a lot, and they say it as kind of an emotional plea. Uh, When they talk about the crucifixion, they talk about the death of Christ, they say, you know, God could have done it any way he wanted, but he chose to send his son to die for you. Now, I know that's meant to pull at your heartstrings and say, oh, uh, what a wonderful sacrifice. He didn't have to do that. Um, I don't think that's true. I don't think there was any other way. If there was another way, whether by the grace of God or by my own merit, then the crucifixion of Jesus was one of the most evil acts that has ever been perpetrated. Think about that. If I can win salvation by just being good enough, then Jesus didn't have to die. There was no need for that, and he died for nothing. If God could have done it any other way and just said, okay, you're all saved, you're all, or whatever, then he chose to murder his son. I don't like what that says about God. I don't believe there was a choice. I think it was the only way. I think it was the way it was intended from the beginning. Then yes, Jesus prayed in the garden that he didn't have to do it. And, but what was the answer? Nope, you got to do it. That tells me a lot. There was no choice. And we're not going to nullify that sacrifice. We're not going to nullify that grace by trying to make salvation something that we earn. That's what Paul's saying here. And now, He's going to get into a deeper discussion about faith, works, and the law. And then we're going to talk in chapters 4 and 5 about something called sonship. Sonship, meaning being children of God. And what that means and how that happens. All that and more to come when we get back here next week. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you then.